You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, friends, fellow alumni. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you here to this extraordinary uh, uh, venue. Um, we, we've never actually done one of these outside of Dublin before, or behind the headlines. So we're absolutely thrilled to be here uh, in London uh, for a discussion on the crisis of democracy. Um, we're, yeah, exactly. What can one say? Uh, we're just uh, joined by a very, very distinguished uh, panel. Uh, and I'm going to introduce the panel uh, in a moment. But let me begin by introducing myself. My name is Jane Olmeyer. Uh, I'm Professor of Modern History at Trinity, but I'm also the director of the Trinity Long Room uh, Hub. Uh, I'm going to say a few words about the hub, and here it is, in case, I don't know when, when you were last in Trinity, but has everybody been to visit the hub at this stage? You know, it's that amazing new building uh, uh, just opposite the Long Room. Uh, but, but, but here it is, and I'm going to just say a few words about the hub before I introduce our speakers. So, so basically, it's a research institute in the arts and humanities. And we do three things. The first thing we do is celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at, at Trinity. Uh, you could say from the 17th century, it's an area uh, where Trinity has been absolutely world class. And uh, today, that hasn't changed. Um, we would be the most highly ranked faculty area, not just in Trinity, but anywhere uh, in Ireland. And we were absolutely thrilled this year to see that our classicists are 13th in the world. I think we've got some classics graduates, do we? Anyone, any classicists? Oh, wrong university, Jamie. Carol's <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, But uh, English, 28th in the world. And again, I think we've got some English uh, 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 alum here, here this evening. Um, so that's the first thing that we do. The second thing that we do is promote multi and interdisciplinarity. We really want to get conversations going across the disciplines in the arts and humanities, but also uh, with the natural scientists, uh, with the health scientists, with the engineers and the computer scientists. Because we believe that when the disciplines uh, collide, uh, magic happens. So the third thing then we do is public humanities, because we believe that we want to take the insights and the learnings of the arts and humanities to the widest possible audiences. And that's one reason why we hold events like this and other signature events uh, uh, back in Dublin. Um, there are some little brochures about the hub, the blue brochures that are on your uh, chair. But we also have some of our uh, recent or our upcoming events. I think as you come in, there's, there are flyers. Um, and uh, I'll say a few words about uh, a, couple, a couple of the upcoming events at, at the end tonight. But it goes without saying that you're all extremely welcome at these events. Um, they are open to the public. And we podcast and live stream everything. So if you can't be there in person, at least uh, join us online for some of them. Because, as I say, uh, we, we really want to reach the widest uh, possible uh, audiences. Um, we should also just simply say that Trinity is about to go into campaigns. So we're beginning our first ever philanthropic uh, campaign. Uh, the Arts and Humanities are going to be featuring in that campaign. So I know some of you are already supporting us, and thank you very much indeed for that. And uh, if others are thinking about supporting Trinity as uh, the campaign gathers steam, obviously we'd love uh, to talk to you further about the Arts and Humanities and uh, about the Trinity Long Room Hub. So I'm here this evening, but also Sinead Pentony and other colleagues uh, uh, from the Foundation. So this brings me to tonight and our Behind the Headlines uh, uh, event, which is funded by the John Pollard uh, Foundation, and we're very grateful uh, uh, to Stephen Vernon. It's one of our signature events. It runs monthly in Dublin, so we've got a big one coming up next week on race. Uh, the one this evening, though, of course, is uh, uh, on the crisis of democracy, and it's happening here in this lovely uh, building, thanks to uh, one of our alumni, David Sharp. I didn't get to meet David, and he was here a moment ago, uh, and hopefully, see at the back there? there. Da oh, David, listen, you're, you're very, very good. You're the CEO of Universal Music, so thank you very much indeed. It's, it's just a beautiful, absolutely beautiful venue. 
Um, the purpose of Behind the Headlines is uh, to focus on topics that are either being debated in the media or are highly uh, uh, relevant to the times in which uh, we're living. Uh, and what we really want to do with these panel discussions is to bring uh, perspectives uh, to the debate uh, that uh, will really enrich uh, uh, the discourse uh, and combat simplification. And this evening, obviously, it's a hugely important uh, discussion. Um, we're going to be looking at the rise of populist authoritarian movements around the world and ask why these approaches to government hold more appeal uh, than uh, the status quo. So why this and, and why now? Um, uh, there are very worrying trends um, uh, throughout the Western world. I think we'll be uh, hearing about a few of them uh, this evening, but particularly in Europe as we await to see what happens in the upcoming European Parliament elections uh, this May. And then of course we have Brexit. Anyway, let me now turn to the panel. Um, uh, I'm going to e introduce uh, all, all four members of our panel, um, um, and I'll introduce them in the order in which they're going to be speaking. So our uh, first uh, speaker tonight is Bill Emmett. Uh, Bill is a journalist and former editor-in-chief of The Economist, and I'm absolutely delighted to say that he has become the new chair of the Trinity Long Room Hub Board, so he's now very much part of the Trinity family. Um, he's the author of many, many books uh, on uh, Japan, Asia, uh, and uh, Italy. And his Fate of the West uh, was published in uh, 2017. Uh, he also has co-produced um, and co-authored uh, a documentary about Italy called Girlfriend in a Coma, and was the executive producer of the great European disaster movie. Uh, and both uh, were shown on the BBC. So uh, we're delighted to have uh, Bill here this evening. Uh, I'm also delighted to welcome, to just behind me here, uh, Professor Heather Jones, who uh, is at University College uh, London, where she's professor in modern and contemporary European history. She uh, actually was only last year that Heather moved uh, to um, UCL uh, from uh, the London School of Economics. Her main research uh, uh, work is on World War uh, One, and uh, she has a new book about to appear on the British monarchy and First World War. I, I, I don't know, Heather, about to appear this year sometime? End of this year. Um, but Heather is an expert on many things, including the history of Ireland uh, in revolution and war, uh, and the history of, the, of Weimar uh, Germany. I'm also delighted that Heather is a graduate of Trinity, and I remember her as uh, the head of department when she began, uh, the head of the history department, uh, working with John Horne, so she, she's, she's a Trinity uh, uh, graduate. As is our third speaker this evening, um, actually, I was going to say, both of our remaining speakers are, are Trinity graduates, so our third speaker this evening is Roy Foster, and Roy really needs very little introduction from me. Uh, but I, I'll say a few words anyway. Uh, he's Professor of Irish History and Literature at Queen Mary at University in London, uh, but he also taught uh, Irish History um, at Birkbeck, and then uh, he was the uh, Carroll Professor of Irish History at Oxford for, for many years. Uh, Roy has published so widely on Irish political, uh, social and uh, literary history. Um, as I say, he's a graduate of uh, the History Department in Trinity, where he was a foundation scholar, and he studied under T.W. Moody. I don't know if people remember T.W. Moody, uh, my predecessor as, as the Erasmus Smith's uh, uh, Professor of Modern History. Um, uh, now, Roy's uh, uh, work is extremely wide-ranging, but it's really the cultural interactions between Ireland uh, and Britain, but also he looks at questions of identity politics and the degree to which uh, a colonial relationship existed uh, between uh, uh, the two countries. I have a, Roy uh, uh, holds a very special place in my heart as well because uh, he helped to make the Trinity Long Room Hub happen. Uh, back in 2006 when we were thinking about a very big and audacious idea uh, for the humanities at Trinity, we came up with the idea of a research institute um, in the uh, humanities and Roy and a number of other colleagues really helped 
realise that dream um, and helped us leverage 1.8 million. I have to keep on reminding myself, 1.8 is a lot of money. That's when Ireland had money that allowed us then uh, to build this exquisite uh, research institute. And I think, Roy, now as we look back a decade on, the hub really is exceeding are exceeding what we ever expected. So uh, as I say, I'm so grateful uh, uh, to Roy uh, for, for not the support he just gave us then, but throughout the last decade, he's been amazing. Last but not least, um, Etain Tannen, who is Professor of International Peace Studies in Trinity. Uh, her main area of expertise is the Northern Irish cross-border cooperation and British-Irish uh, cooperation. She has become a Brexit expert, if such a thing exists. Um, uh, she certainly has been a key expert voice in the media uh, since the referendum and she has contributed to various committees and reports on Brexit including the House of Commons Select Committee for Northern Ireland and the House of Lords Brexit uh, Inquiry and um, she's currently writing a book on British-Irish relations in the 21st uh, century which is coming out with Oxford University Press. So we have four wonderful, wonderful speakers um, the format for these behind the headlines is uh, basically each speaker has nine minutes and I sit at the front and after nine minutes I pull, turn the microphone off. Um, and one reason we do this is because we want to leave plenty of time for questions and answers and discussion. Um, so everybody will have an opportunity uh, to join uh, uh, the proceedings this evening, which we are podcasting. So um, just bear that in mind that we hope then to uh, uh, be able to uh, put this on the Trinity website uh, uh, tomorrow. The, for those of you who tweet, um, uh, uh, we'd love you to tweet, but if everybody else could put their phones on silent, just so we don't have any mobile phones pinging throughout the uh, uh, evening. And for those of you who are tweeting, the hashtag is hubbatters and you tag at the Trinity Long and Hub. Anyway, enough from me. Uh, if I could now uh, invite our first speaker, uh, uh, Bill Emmett, to uh, address us. Please, Bill. Well, thank you very much, Jane, for your wonderful introductions of us all. And I'm to say, first of all, that I'm thrilled uh, to be not just here, but living in Kalini, actually in Dublin, but also chair of the Long Room Hub, which is a great excitement uh, because it really is such a dynamic uh, part of, of, of Trinity College. Uh, and Throughout my journalistic career, um, I've been kind of a, 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 a devious um, proponent of interdisciplinary thinking of all kinds, um, and I'm delighted to find a part of, of Trinity that uh, absolutely is propagating it, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be there. Um, the crisis of democracy, though, is the subject on which we have to talk and think this evening. And the first thing we should ask ourselves is, is there really a crisis of democracy? One of the characteristics of democracies is that we spend all our time thinking that we're in crisis, uh, particularly if you're in the media. Um, in 1974, uh, in fact, a group, a big, the international conference group set up by David Rockefeller uh, and Henry Kissinger and others called the Trilateral Commission, probably many of you have been members of it even, uh, published a report uh, called, guess what, The Crisis of Democracy. Uh, and in it, it quoted um, Billy Brunt, um, who was just about to lose his job, actually, as Chancellor of West Germany, um, as saying that, in his view, uh, democracy in Western Europe probably had at most 20 to 30 more years to survive, but after which the democracies would sink beneath the surrounding oceans of dictatorship uh, and, uh, and, um, and, uh, and undemocracy. I've also spent part of my uh, very enjoyable uh, part of my life looking at and studying the original populist Democrat, in my view, or at least one of the original populist Democrats in Europe, Silvio Berlusconi. Uh, in Italy, first entered the scene, went on to the sporting field, as he would put it, in 1994, um, uh, elected in 2001, sued me in 2002. Um, uh, told. Yeah, his newspaper uh, pointed out that The Economist, that I was working for at the time, was a well-known communist publication, um, and uh, it uh, proved this by putting my photograph on the front page and pointing out that I looked like Lenin. So, are we, are we in a crisis of democracy? Well, is it possible that 
a difficulty with this question is that we tend to define crises of democracy by whether democracies are producing answers in their elections that we don't like. That is, of course, one of the issues that anti-Brexiters have about Brexit. It's an issue that anti-Trumpers have about Trump. Um, I think that we need to think about this as part of a process that inevitably comes in democracy. We are in a period now of some deep contrast to the triumphalism of the 1990s. Triumphalism not just because of the so-called end of history, but rather because of the dramatic spread of democracy that took place um, in that decade, because of the fall of, of, of the Soviet Union uh, and the liberation of uh, so many former uh, satellite uh, countries, that led us probably to think that democracy was in an inevitable process of, uh, of, of growth. Clearly now we are in a period of, uh, that feels different from that. We should remember not all was rosy in the 1990s. We think globalization has only just been uh, pinned down as being um, something to campaign against, but I remember covering the Seattle riots at the time of the World Trade Organization meeting in the late 1990s. Um, this is not uh, a new phenomenon. But what is new? What has changed? That is our topic for today. I think that there are really three levels of answer that we should discuss this evening. One level is about delivery. The real issues with democracies are whether they are delivering what the voter wants. Most voters, except when defending their own civic and human rights, aren't bothered about the process of politics, they're bothered about the outcome of politics, about whether it's delivering. What has democracy done for me? Perhaps what has democracy done for me lately is the question. And the truth is, that many voters uh, in Europe and North America whose real incomes have uh, fallen over the last 10 years, in some cases on average are lower than they were even um, uh, 20 years ago, they are entitled to think that democracy has not done a lot for them. The second issue that complicates that is the European Union. The European Union is a triumphant creation of democracies which is not itself democratic. Uh, in its processes or in its appearance. Uh, and now, as the democracies are suffering from a, a poor period of delivery, so the European Union, as I say, a triumphant creation of democracies, is itself targeted as having become a problem rather than a solution. The second level of answer is about a natural process that I think democracy is there to counter, but that is a corrosive one. Democracy is there to deal with the natural process, the anthropological, sociological process of producing inequality, of, of, of generating tribes, of generating factions. Democracy is intended to equalize and to produce equality before the law and to use a constitution to, uh, to level things. I think in a democracy and in our democracies, Western Europe and North America, we have a process, perhaps because of the triumphalism and, and, um, and uh, complacency of the 1990s, of a capture of democracy in some way by vested interests. This has happened in the past. In the 1970s, when I was growing up in this country, it was the trade unions we thought were governing Britain in an illegitimate way. Now, um, it is a group, other groups of vested interests. We have seen feeling that the, that the financial sector is governing the country. We see uh, issues of, of large monopoly <coughs> technology companies now in North America. The vested interests, which are often captured by the phrase the elites, are the ones targeted. The delegitimization of democracy happens when democracy ceases to become as equal as people want it to be, and then they fight against it and look for alternative solutions. And the third level of analysis is why I call my book The Fate of the West, because I think that the strength and the vitality of the liberal democracies that we have come to uh, take for granted is integrally connected to the network that those democracies have set up, setting up institutions of international law and like peacekeeping in economic and security terms with alliances, with the World Trade Organization, with other institutions, 
in which, on, about which we basically agree, unless we <coughs> Donald Trump. Uh, and the network is now under threat. The key point is that 2008 <coughs> produced a pivot in perceptions, I think, of uh, delivery, first of all, and then legitimization and the legitimacy of democracy. That explains the populist and authoritarian kind of trend since then. It emphasized the crash, the worst crash for, uh, for uh, 80 years, emphasized inequalities that have been growing, but it also critically worsened perceptions of delivery and the general legitimacy of both the economic and the political system. Populism <coughs> is always, I think, in history, um, a response to the sort of stress and strain that a crash like that produces and to perceptions of a lack of, of, of legitimacy of the system. So that is the problem that we're trying to analyze. The difficulty is working out how serious it is. The good thing about democracy is that we think that there are crises all the time, and we talk about them and we try to solve those crises. In solving those crises in Europe and North America, I think we have to deal with the delivery problem, the issue of whether really government policies of various kinds produced through our democratic process have been delivering the sort of expectations, hopes, intergenerational progress that voters have come to expect, but we also critically, I think, have to deal with the legitimacy question, the question of whether power in a democracy is properly and equally shared. The United States <coughs> helpfully, I think, produced an excellent example of the loss of legitimacy with the university bribery scandal. The sense that the wealthy and, and, uh, and, and able were bribing their way in without even alumni presence, I may say, um, into a system to then produce entrenched uh, advantages for their, for their offspring, I think is, is, a, is a prime case of why a system can become delegitimized. If you're going to ask me whether Donald Trump will be re-elected in 2020, we better wait for questions. <laughs> <laughs>
the 2015 crisis around immigration, which saw so many uh, Eastern European states react so negatively to the idea of dispersing uh, uh, immigrants across Europe according to a quota system and integrating people from different uh, ethnic backgrounds. Um, this ongoing uh, trend also helps to explain the contemporary discrimination against Russian speakers in some parts of the, of the Baltics. The second key point I want to make is this is a region where democracy has had a very short and very erratic uh, lifespan, uh, marked by periods of great enthusiasm, followed by great disenchantment. And the region seems to be really marked by uh, a sense of huge expectations built around um, uh, an embrace of democracy that are then uh, followed by a, a very rapid spinning away from that when democracy doesn't deliver in terms of living conditions and high uh, living standards. After the First World War, the region really embraces uh, the idea of democracy, inspired by Woodrow Wilson, the American president, and his 14 points, his rhetoric of self-determination, and his discussion of uh, spreading democracy. Many ate the American model, uh, the American state model of democracy in this period, and also the British and French uh, to some extent. But this gives way very, very rapidly by the, the middle of the 1920s uh, and into the 1930s to strongman authoritarian regimes. Uh, Poland under Pilsudski, for example, um, and Hungary under Admiral Miklos Horthy. And under Horthy, Hungary becomes a refuge for extreme right-wing nationalism from all across Europe. Uh, nationalist terrorists involved in the Freikorps in Germany uh, flee to Hungary to escape uh, the arm of the law, for example, uh, in this period. Uh, by the 1930s, the one true democracy left in the region is Czechoslovakia. Now, what are the parallels? Well, after 1989, there was a rush to embrace liberal democracy and a discourse of a human rights revolution. That's how 1989 has gone down in the history books uh, up, up, to, up, to, up to now, a sense of people power, peaceful reform, and embrace of, uh, of democracy and following an American and Western European uh, model in that period. But rapidly after EU expansion in 2004, and particularly with the economic crisis of the Eurozone in 2008, we saw a pattern of disenchantment with democracy set in in the region, a sense that democracy hadn't delivered and this, ironically, was partly due to, to Britain uh, within the EU pushing uh, for particularly rapid market reforms as part of the EU accession demands in, in the region, uh, which included uh, elements of Thatcherism, cutting state spending, uh, removal of some of the social support networks that have supported people under, under the communist regimes, and a, and, and, and a sense of uh, bringing in the free market economy uh, very, very rapidly. The democratic expectations, in other words, uh, couldn't deliver on living standards, and the Eurozone crisis uh, compounded this. The privatisation of national assets also saw uh, uh, quite, quite significant corruption, uh, which again led to a disenchantment with, uh, with, with democracy. So what we've seen then is Poland and Hungary particularly turning towards <coughs> authoritarian models and turning away from the Western European models, certainly of liberal democracy, and moving towards uh, what, what actually seems to be a more, uh, a more nationalistic model, and uh, moving back almost in some ways into, in, 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 towards, a, towards an orbit uh, of, of nationalism that is coming uh, more from, from, from the new Russian model of nationalism under Putin. Um, what we uh, also see is the EU's aim uh, in trying to, to, to uh, integrate uh, Eastern Europe into, into, dem into the democratic system, which was modeled on what it had done with Spain and Greece, which had had dictatorships and been brought in very successfully and are now successful uh, in, in many ways as liberal democracies, um, worked during the incentivization period, during the period of accession, when these demands had to be met to get accession into the EU. We only saw war uh, breaking out in Yugoslavia. That was a major achievement. However, once accession was achieved, there wasn't really those systems in place to ensure that those types of, of, of processes continued. And that was a gap in the, in the planning, uh, in many ways, at the EU level. My third and final point is that there's a very strong mythology of nationalism in this Eastern European region because of the historic circumstances it has experienced. Under communism, the Second World War was generally presented as a, a, a class-based conflict, essentially a border <coughs> fascism against a working class. That didn't allow a space to discuss the region's anti-Semitism, the role of, 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 of regional populations in the Holocaust, where in some cases they were actually existing in the Holocaust, uh, and it didn't allow for an interrogation of nationalist histories either, uh, things like the Katyn massacre or, or the Warsaw Uprising of 1944. These nationalist histories were largely suppressed and then surged out again uh, with the fall of communism. In many ways, this was a 
good thing, it's good that this issue around prison now being brought to, to the fore. It's very important that, that the Warsaw Uprising and the nationalist histories of the Second World War are now being in, in, interrogated in more detail. But the problem is that this has also played into populist mythic narratives of a national, uh, national dream or vision of the, of the nation state. In many cases, too, the interrogation has not gone far enough. So the silences on anti-Semitism in particular are deeply worrying. And you see that playing out in Hungary around the, the, the ways in which Soros has been vilified uh, in, 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 in the pro-Orban uh, media. So in other words, this is a region of Europe, uh, and it's not the only one, where new populist leaders are drawing on a scene of older fascist histories of myths that have not been adequately challenged. Um, I would say this is also happening in parts of Western Europe. If you look at Salvini and you look at the Northern League in Italy, he is modeling himself in many ways on the rhetoric and bombast of Mussolini. And there are, uh, there are real questions there about the, about the ongoing uh, lack of interrogation of the, the, the role of, of, of fascism uh, across Italian society. In France, Marie Le Pen and the Front National are very clearly, in many ways, the heirs to the Vichy regime's narrative of French history. So, what we see at the moment, I would say, in summing up, is Eastern Europe uh, oscillating between orbits, um, moving from a Soviet, Soviet Russian orbit uh, towards a Western orbit, but following the crash of 2008, uh, moving back in many ways uh, towards other kinds of older historic uh, patterns, which are very troubling. This is also added to by the fact that there is spillover from the new Russian model of a kind of 19th century nationalism that Putin uh, is in many ways projecting, and from Turkey and what Erdogan is doing uh, with, with his uh, creation of kind of Turkish nationalism based on religious identity. We see that very much in Eastern Europe too, where religious identity and Christian democracy, which had been very much part of the original EU integration project as a way of bringing Europe together, is now being used deliberately as a way of fragmenting it, breaking the East off from the West, and giving greater prominence to Eastern European uh, countries within uh, the EU. Uh, all of these issues are, 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 deep, are deeply, deeply uh, troubling, and obviously draw on older ideas of Eastern Europe as a bulwark uh, for, for, for Europe more generally. Post-communism, nationalism is always likely to be resurgent due to disenchantment with the left and with the communist past. But what is surprising is how little the EU actually planned for dealing with this and for this resurgence. Now we have a situation where the Visegrad group with Italy and perhaps also Austria, depending on how its coalition government handles its far-right uh, component, challenge the original values of the European integration movement itself, which from the 1950s have been grounded in liberal democracy and freedom of speech and the press. Um, and I, I, I leave with this, this, this key question about uh, what does the future hold with a rise now of secessionism uh, and the uh, secession of, of, of Britain effectively from the European project. Uh, the European project is thereby losing a key Western power bulwark that had balanced out uh, this, 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 this contestation within Europe. Uh, the future now uh, looks like a, a jockey for power in the May elections uh, between the ideals of Europe, the, the new ideas of populist Eastern European um, political figures about what the EU should be uh, and Western European uh, longer term uh, traditions. Thank you. reflection on what the uh, current impasse in British politics means for Anglo-Irish relations, looking backwards, if you like, to what seems to me a strikingly clear precedent, which was when home rule as an issue erupted into uh, British politics um, in the 1880s. Um, because I think the way the British responses to European involvement and to many issues are diametrically different from Ireland's responses is something that goes back and has a history that we can profitably consider. Um, the Irish presence at Westminster, the Irish presence as part of the union between Britain and Ireland between 1800 and 1921 is something that seems only to be recognised at times of crisis and opportunism in British politics. And I do want to talk a little about the interaction between British populism and policy towards Ireland, because when Home Rule was voted down in the mid-1880s, it was through playing to a nativist, imperialist, and anti-Irish gallery. 
And there are curious parallels with today when you think that it was an opportunist Tory politician playing to the Ulster Gallery who managed to really put the kibosh on the vote. Watching Boris Johnson's visibly uncomfortable visit to the boot-faced brethren of the DUP a few months ago, I could only imagine that Lord Randolph Churchill, Winston's disreputable father, arriving in Ulster to tell them that they would fight and that they would be right and play, as he put it, the orange card. Partly as an ill-judged bid to topple his Conservative leader and then spending the rest of his short career erratically in the wilderness. We hope that that's a parallel. <laughs> just, like, just like Lord Randolph, Johnson magnetises the political world by opportunism, playing to the gallery, and playing to the British working class's adoration of a really rude top. That's very much what Randolph Churchill did in the past, making his name by outrageous acts of disloyalty towards his older colleagues. Um, and finally, as I say, crashing out. Um, Johnson's leader was, uh, sorry, Church's leader was the great Lord Salisbury, who was about the opposite of Mrs. May in everything from intellectual ability to strategic decisiveness. But the relationship between the challenger, the prime minister, and the use of Ireland as a football to make the point is very striking. Home rule in Ireland, or for Ireland in the 1880s, Brexit for Britain today, the parallels are to me extraordinary. Both issues split the major parties, distracted attention and political resources from pressing issues of domestic and foreign affairs for a generation, and seem to me to have enabled levels of prejudice, myopia, and vindictiveness which have infected politics at all levels. Read the rhetoric of the mid-1880s and it is alarmingly similar. When Ireland was finally given a kind of independence, it came about through violent guerrilla war followed by civil war, leaving two skewed states marked indelibly by sectarianism. And many of those who were around in the 20s and remember the 1880s realized uncomfortably what a chance had been passed up then. I think it's a fair bet that the same realization may dawn on British politicians and that it'll, it's a penny to the drop in a great deal of great history. Northern Ireland remained this kind of reduced and distilled version of the Irish question in British politics through the, through the 20th century. And the opportunism and present-mindedness of the way that James Callaghan, for instance, approached it in 1979, um, and the floundering Theresa May has learned her cost since her conceived election, again, makes one think of parallels. In terms of the agreement that May made with um, Arlene Foster and the um, Democratic Unionist Party, it's striking, I think, that the irrational embrace of Brexit by the DUP, for, I can see no other reason than simply because the Shinners um, opposed it, um, <laughs> leads us to consider what the basis of that arrangement is. It's significant, I think, that support for Northern Ireland's farmers is heavily emphasised, along with the illogical and delusionary insistence that there be no substantive change to border arrangements with the Republic. I don't want to trench on Aitam's subject here, but I think it's important. Britain's exit from the EU is clearly seen to be bad news for Northern Ireland and for the Republic. I think this is a view taken among diplomats, businessmen, farmers, and most intellectuals. It looks like an irrational course of self. Harm. The way in which the border has become invisible over recent years, a result of the cessation of paramilitary activity and the common membership of Ireland and the EU, is totally ignored in the run-up of the arguments to Brexit. It had reached the point where, as the great essayist Hubert Butler said, he hoped it would in the 1950s, where the border would be a distinction rather than a division and would eventually float away like a sticking plaster off a wound that has healed. We are very far that today. And a moment's thought about the implications of Brexit for the Irish border uh, would, one would have thought, caused some second thoughts in the run-up to that moment, that referendum, but it didn't. Among the many dishonest and I think slipshod characteristics of the political arguments leading to Brexit was the ignoring of this. European leaders have significantly noticed this and adhered to the Irish border problem as one of the key issues in the near 
Wolf says that the historical echoes raised by the current political convolutions aren't encouraging. They remind us, first, that the political and economic realities of Ireland, North and South, are historically and generically different from those in Britain, particularly perhaps from those in England. And we've been reminded that the pandering to myopia and xenophobia in British public life necessarily involves ignoring the implications for Ireland, and it has always been thus. So it was during the home rule crisis of the 80s, 1880s, the Irish Revolution of 1912-22. As in those upheavals, the Irish were remembered when their votes were useful for buying time, and in their modest and eccentric way, the DUP are in a long tradition, though hardly a noble one. I think the Irish elements of our shared British and Irish history function much in the way that Sigmund Freud talked about his repressed impulses and the way they fester in the unconscious to return inevitably, though not recognizably, producing symptomatic outbursts which will lead to chaos. This ineptitude and ignorance, as well as unthinking condescension, has reached a point where Anglo-Irish relations are in a bad place, as a psych therapist would say. Mrs. May may think that Ireland is just, as she has said, one country which cannot hold up negotiations, and, I quote again, that the UK is a much bigger and more important country than Ireland, but it's pretty unwise not to say stupid of her to say so. The solidarity with which the 26 EU neighbours have supported Ireland and the general calibre of the Irish diplomatic stance reminds us that from Ireland's point of view, and this again is a classic difference, sovereignty can be enhanced by membership of the EU, an opinion which um, is not popular in this country, where Ireland's pretensions are sometimes talked about as if it were that wonderful now forgotten film that Peter used to as the mouse that roared. Very interesting that about sort of a retaining country. Ireland, I think, has become, since entry into the EU, a far more modern, expansive, confident, and less retaining place than the charming backwater of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. 5,000 jobs and 11 billion um, in financial services money may be heading towards Ireland as a kind of payoff or one of the few bright sides of Brexit, and that makes England look more Ruritanian than metropolitan these days. But ending with the Victorian period, I can't help constantly being reminded of John Stuart Mill's remark long ago that Ireland was in the mainstream of European history, whereas England was in an eccentric backwater. I think the past can tell us something different. Thank you. the internal democratic institutions that must work for all people, 
um, and the cross-border relationship, which actually I'm not going to talk about here, um, so that there is functional and economic cooperation between both parts of the island to develop the island economically, but culturally as well. And then the British-Irish relationship. And that really was key because it was the Sunnydale Agreement, if you go back to that failed agreement, failed because British and Irish governments were not on the same page and did not hold firm, particularly the British <coughs> government did not hold firm against uh, the Ulster Worker uh, Council strike and unionist opposition. So John Hume's emphasis was on having joined up thinking a British-Irish strategy that would be held to regardless of the crises that were faced, regardless of the problems that there would be close communication, ongoing communication, and a joint strategy. And it worked, as we saw, extremely well. It came to fruition in the 90s. I think that's when it got most attention, in a way, when we saw Blair and Ahern and, and the sort of close relationship they had. But it developed from the 80s onwards, very much through um, civil servants as well, forging close friendships, um, which they've written about since. Not just a, a, a political or um, career-type relationship, but actually a, a, a very close relationship personally as well. That's why I think it is so shocking to see what Brexit has done in, in such a short space of time to have reversed that. But my argument is that it's not that Brexit is necessarily the cause of all of what we see, although I am um, a Remainer or would have been had I been in the UK. I think Brexit has exposed weaknesses in the relationship. And Jane invited me to speak just before the referendum in 2016 at one of these events hosted in Trinity. And I was probably too optimistic because my argument was that yes, Brexit is a challenge for all the reasons we know to Northern Ireland. Um, however, it can be managed by British Irish cooperation, and I predicted it would be. But actually, that fell apart very quickly. And as we saw, David Cameron in his campaign did not mention Northern Ireland. He did not want it mentioned because it wasn't something which was a vote winner. Because essentially, most people in the UK or in England, uh, at least, did not really care about Northern Ireland, and it was a sensitive issue. So that was not on the agenda. After the referendum, it was very obvious how infrequently both governments were in communication. And it was not, although I'm biased, I admit, it was not the fault of the Irish government. The British government did not engage at prime ministerial level with the Irish government. There was one meeting between Enda Kenny and David Cameron. Then there were very few, I was actually trying to remember because I have a graph on this somewhere, but there were, there were roughly two for the whole period. And it's only in the past year that has stepped up. So given the challenges and the crisis, it really was remarkable um, how quickly the relationship seemed to disintegrate. Um, and that sort of leads me to another point which I've been sort of thinking about recently because of a blog post I had to do on the backstop. Um, because uh, Dan O'Brien, who is head of the International, the Institute for International European Integration, sorry, changed his name a while ago, uh, in Dublin has argued that the backstop should never have been the strategy used by the Irish government because it's too hard to compromise on it. You can't, if you do now, it, it, you know, you do a U-turn. However, it was, it's the reason that really the relationship was not as strong as we thought. My argument is that the backstop became essential and lobbying the EU to maintain the backstop became essential because it was clear the British government was not prioritizing Northern Ireland, did not seem to, I don't know, did not understand the significance of the border after the Good Friday Agreement, where it had become much more open, where people were traveling up to Northern Ireland culturally for shopping trips, etc., but also for business. Although trade did not develop to the level I think that might have been expected, it, it was definitely easier to um, do business than it was before. But because the relationship um, proved um, not to be as trustworthy, really, the backstop became essential and became adversarial very much in that it was an Irish and EU policy and it was one that has, as we see, and does create huge difficulties for the British government in delivering um, the withdrawal agreement. So I suppose the, the core point is that um, fundamentally the Good Friday Agreement <coughs> strands were not implemented. So very briefly, strand three deals with East-West, <coughs> the British-Irish relationship in the Good Friday Agreement. And in fact, all attention was focused on strand one, dealing with democracy in Northern Ireland and the institutions there. Um, but really, since 2007, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference didn't meet until very recently in the summer. Um, and there was very little, there was complacency about Northern Ireland. The, the job was done, there was peace. So they really took, both governments, I would say, took their eye off the ball. 
However, with Brexit, um, obviously the whole issue resurged again. The old issue of the border made a resurgence, Sinn Féin calling for the border fold, as did Enda Kenny mention unification as well shortly afterwards, as did Nihal Martin from the fall. So it's a very sensitive issue came back. And we see then cooperation was not as embedded as many of us thought it was. So it needed institutionalization, it needed those Good Friday Agreement institutions to make sure it happened. Because going back to the 80s, that was the whole point. We had the Falklands War, the HBOC uh, hunger strikes, very tense times. And the emphasis was that governments must meet when there's a crisis, even more than when there isn't one. And actually that's what didn't happen with Brexit. So Brexit has exposed weaknesses that were there already, um, that the Good Friday Agreement was not implemented fully. It's exposed um, a lack of trust that can quickly come back unless you do have those frequent meetings. And I think in the future, um, the emphasis will be, which the Irish government has been emphasising, and uh, Theresa May mentioned it quite recently in Belfast, that the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference representing both governments at higher level will meet regularly um, after Brexit. And also that there will be bilateral agreements across functional economic areas, creating another layer of contact. Because when the UK leaves, or if, that doesn't say when, uh, leaves the EU, um, that, that whole forum for cooperation will be gone. And Irish and British governments got on extremely well in the EU framework. They shared many interests. There were many corridor talks. So that would be absent. So the argument is the backstop would not have been necessary if a level of trust had been there in the first place. Bertie Ahern argued right from the start that there should be a bilateral agreement between both governments before Article 50 was triggered to sort all of this out, and that didn't happen. So the level of cooperation was not there in the first place, as much as we thought it was the Queen's visit and President Higgins coming here. It's not really there. If it had been, probably would not have needed the backstop. Thank you. Absolutely wonderful uh, uh, presentations while you collect your thoughts.